Welcome to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins, and I'm joined by my co-host of the show, Felicity Nelson. Hi, everyone. As you probably all know by now, we've been running a live blog on our website every day to try and bring you some of the breaking news about the pandemic. And every news outlet is doing this now, but no one else is running a blog specifically for GPs. And I'm finding it quite helpful just to keep up to date with what's going on. I mean, this thing is moving so fast, and if I switch off for half a day, I'm laughably behind on everything so this blog is really handy even just you know for me keeping up with updates yeah and I mean there's such a swell of information that even keeping up these days isn't actually keeping up there's it's just constant swimming through the pool of information um but we understand that GPs are run off their feet right now and so it's completely understandable if you don't have time to read the live stream uh we're going to be doing these podcast updates so that you can listen on your drive home or when you get into the office in the morning or basically whenever you've got a spare 20 minutes So Bianca Nogrady is a science and medical freelancer who's been working full-time on this live blog. Welcome to the show, Bianca. Thanks so much, Felicity. Okay, so Bianca, you're very busy keeping this blog up to date. And the most important update in the recent days is probably the Medicare billing item numbers for telehealth. What's the latest on this? Yeah, so this was a little bit complicated. There's a number of different elements to this story. It affects both specialists and allied health professionals and GPs. Um, And thankfully, um, Medical Republic reporter Penny Durham actually delved into this in a little bit more detail for us yesterday. So uh, the short version is specialists can now bill as usual for all patients that they see by telehealth. So the uh, government has dropped the requirement they bulk bill um, those deemed that uh, who are thought to be vulnerable to COVID-19. GPs still need to bulk build children under 16 and concessional patient, patients, as well as people who are vulnerable to COVID-19, but all other patients can be billed at the GP's discretion. There's now two new bulk billing incentives, uh, I think sort of ranging from $12 to $19, um, for seeing Uh, patients who are vulnerable to COVID-19, either by telehealth or face-to-face. It doesn't actually specify what they mean by vulnerable to COVID-19, but I'm guessing that would be, you know, pre-existing conditions, maybe the elderly. It's not really clear on that, so I'm not sure. Uh, There's also another 28 new telehealth items available for specialists, so that includes psychiatrists, public health physicians, and neurosurgeons. And there is also now um, telehealth item numbers for services provided by a practice nurse or an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health practitioner on behalf of a medical practitioner. And I think those also are really um, targeting um, helping patients who have chronic health conditions. So it's clear as mud, uh, as you can tell, um, but it's certainly the the kind of telehealth item numbers and um, uh, those incentives are being expanded it feels like there's updates happening almost every day. Not quite that many, but there's a lot. So hopefully this is the latest update, at least as of yesterday. That's super helpful. And I was reading that they've done now more than 4 million telehealth services. Um, and I think that's like 700,000 in the past week alone. So this is massively ramped up. That's huge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's astonishing. And I, I think it would be really interesting to see what happens to the use of telehealth after this pandemic is over, if it's ever over. Um, And I'm sure you guys have probably been talking about that as well. But 
yeah, there must be so many more telehealth consultations that will happen now when people realise that they don't necessarily have to travel an hour or on public transport to, to see a doctor face-to-face. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I've had my first uh, telehealth appointment with a specialist and it was really great. I was like, wow, I don't have to leave the house. I can just have this 10-minute phone call, get the info I need. It was, yeah, it's, I think patients are going to really love it once they have access to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine, yes, it's going to be something I'll make more use of as well. <laughs> and the other big uh, news item is obviously elective surgeries restarting. What should GPs be telling their patients about this right now? So the details that we've got so far are that um, the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has announced that they'll be res- elective surgery will resume next week. Um, and it's Basically, it's because they've suddenly, well, not suddenly, that they've managed to secure a pretty good supply of masks and personal protective equipment. So they're talking about category one, two and urgent category three surgery. So one is surgery, category one, it refers to surgery where the patient's going to end up in emergency in the not too distant future if they don't have it. Category two is if it's causing kind of pain and disability, but it's not likely to land them in the emergency department. Um, and category three, I think, yes, is um, stuff that isn't quite so urgent. Uh, so all of that can is now going to restart. And I know that the AMA was calling for that to be kind of a staged introduction. Um, and it does include IVF, actually, as well, IVF procedures. Uh, so we don't have more detail on how that reintroduction will happen. Um, but, you know, it's and it will also be interesting to see what happens in terms of the interaction with private hospitals as well. Um, after the kind of the nationalisation that was not a nationalisation of the private um, private hospitals. So, yeah, we don't have a lot of fine details, but as of next week, I guess it does mean that we can start seeing elective surgery um, pick up again. So from moving on from there, I saw something about APRA asking doctors to keep their medical indemnity insurance going. Uh, what's all that about, Bianca? Well, the APRA website is really interesting. They have these um, FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, which uh, are updated fairly regularly. I suspect it's because they're getting a lot of inquiries from worried doctors. Um, And I found it particularly amusing. I think a few days ago they had a post listing all of the things that they can't help doctors with, um, which there was a sense of, please stop asking us about these things. But uh, this particular one was that they were really clarifying the situation with respect to professional indemnity insurance and saying that... um, If you're forced to take a break from work, so for example, yeah, if your clinic shuts down, you do still need to keep your professional indemnity insurance going, but it is appropriate to to pull it back to something like runoff cover instead of having full cover for at least the duration of time that you're you're not practicing. Um, But it's, I mean, with all of these, they said, please talk to your insurance provider. Um, and also they did remind, I mean, if you are still practising, obviously you still need to be covered for, to have full cover. Um, they said if your practice has changed significantly, so if you are seeing a lot, you know far fewer patients or if you're you know working in a non-clinical role, then again, they just said talk to your insurance provider, look at what your cover options might be for the period of time that you're, you know, that you're in this kind of altered professional state, I guess. But really the the, the stress was that if you are working um, and even if you're not working, you still need to keep your med- medical indemnity insurance up. Um, but it may be that you can, um, I guess, dial it down a little bit during the time that your practice is impacted by COVID-19. And I saw that there were some updated guidelines for treating mild COVID-19 cases that came out last week. Is there anything interesting in that? 
that GPs should be aware of or is it just kind of, you know, common sense routine treatment? I guess it's fairly common sense. So these are updated guidelines from the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force and they're tasked with um, producing living guidelines. So these, this, they're really updating the evidence as it evolves in kind of in real time, which must be a devil of a job and I don't envy them at all. Um, but I, I thought this was useful because, you know, with mild COVID-19, there's got to be a real question in the minds of, of GPs and, and healthcare providers generally of what do I do with this patient? Do they need to go to hospital? Um, how do I care for them? And, and the, the, the advice is that at, at baseline, you know, you don't need to do chest X-ray or blood tests unless they're clinically indicated. Um, and patients who do have mild disease can be managed in the community if they're given you know, a lot of advice on how to manage their symptoms, how to self-isolate, and if they've got someone checking in on them. So particularly if there are patients who are living alone, need to make sure that there is someone who's checking in on them to, to make sure that they are okay. Um, if you've got patients with mild COVID-19 who do have pre-existing lung conditions like asthma or COPD, the current advice is they should just continue with their existing dosage of preventive medication or inhaled corticosteroids. Um, they've suggested that metered dose inhalers are preferred over nebulizers. I'm not quite sure why, but that, that advice was in there. Um, and similarly, patients with diabetes or cardiovascular disease should just continue on the current medication dosages. Obviously, you know, if their medical condition changes, then do what you'd normally do, but um, they don't have to change that medication because of the COVID-19. Same with patients on immunosuppressive therapies um, who have kind of autoimmune conditions. Just keep doing what you're doing with them, basically. Um, and really the guidelines is if they get worse, they, um, which apparently is most likely to occur in the second or third week of illness. So it's almost like you kind of have this period, you know, a lag period or something where, uh, and, then, and then if conditions get worse, that's when it happens. Um, you know, advised if they, if they have symptoms like severe shortage of breath, blue lips, chest pain, coughing up blood, you know, signs of pneumonia, basically anything scary, then they should, you know, go to hospital. But, uh, but otherwise, patients with mild disease should be um, fine to be managed in the community unless their condition worsens. So going forward, the question that's coming to everyone's mind now is how long is the lockdown going to last? Um, and is there any updates on that, Bianca? Well, I think the PM um, at the last press conference uh, was saying we've still got four weeks of this uh, current situation ahead of us. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as I think we're starting to slowly and cautiously uh, celebrate, Australia is actually doing remarkably well, uh, particularly on a, a, you know, on a global scale. I mean, I think as of 3 p.m. yesterday, we had... 6,647 confirmed infections, which was up only 22 from the day before nationally, which is pretty good. Um, and unfortunately, there are 74 deaths, which um, are all tragic, but certainly could have been a lot, lot higher. And there was an analysis from the Doherty Institute, um, which said that we have actually done the right thing, that government and community action has been taken early enough. Um, and we've done it with enough commitment that we have avoided um, the public health crisis, which we're now seeing unfold um, in the United States and, and other parts of the world. So, you know, that's really encouraging. Um, it's we, We've done the right thing, we're doing the right thing, and we should continue to do the right thing. In terms of what happens next, I, look, there's so many think pieces coming out about this, and I, I don't know. I mean, I read so many bits and pieces about, you know, there's modelling and there's this and there's that, but I think 
there's there's no hard and fast rules here. There's no guidelines that's that tell us the right way to go about this. But certainly, you know, there are warnings from a number of different um, quarters saying that um, if we do relax these lockdown measures too soon, or if we relax them too much. Um, that we could see a rapid rise in disease activity. And I believe that Singapore has also um, had a, a real spike in cases in the last few days. Um, so I don't know <laughs> is really the short answer about what happens next and when we come out of this. Um, certainly at the moment, it, it, you know, the Doherty Institute um, analysis suggests that the healthcare system, it's in good shape, it's handling the caseloads really well. We need to keep up vigilance. Um, and obviously there's concern as well for rural and remote hospitals. Um, and I, know, I think um, ACRAM and the RDAA has sort of voiced concerns that there are quite a few smaller regional hospitals that maybe aren't as prepared if if we do start to sort of see spikes in cases in regional areas. So we just got to really, uh, I guess, hope that that doesn't happen and, and certainly suggest that if we keep doing what we're doing, we can hopefully avoid that scenario coming uh, coming into play. Absolutely. So one of the things that ACRAM has told all rural hospitals to do as of last week is to make sure that they're actually running simulations with all of their staff to make sure that they have enough PPE, they can transport a patient safely through the wards um, without the patient uh, spreading aerosol or coming into contact with other patients. And more interestingly, one of the things that the Akron president, Dr Ewan McPhee, told me is that it's a perfectly reasonable thing that if you run one of these simulations and you find out that you actually don't have the capacity, you don't have the expertise, you don't have the equipment and you don't have a bigger hospital to support you, um, that's actually a very good outcome to know now um, because we will see, you know, sporadic or some cases of COVID going into the future, even if they are small or rare occurrences. And if you run that simulation, you'll be at least able to tell your PHN or the emergency services to not bring a COVID patient to your small rural hospital. And it might be helped by the fact the rural, um, rural, sorry, the Royal Flying Doctors got a big funding boost uh, just in the last week. I think thirty-eight million to specifically to help them um, handle the uh, evacuations and um, kind of consultations around potential COVID nineteen patients in regional and remote areas. So yeah, that they're um, on hand as well to help perhaps in scenarios where hospitals might not be equipped to deal with um, infected patients. Well, that's super interesting to hear about what's happening in rural areas. Um, I guess one of the things to watch would be countries where they've gone through a period of lockdown and then now just gradually starting to um, loosen those restrictions, places in China, I'm thinking, um, would be quite interesting to follow along to see what happens. You know, do they get a spike in infections? And I guess, you know, the place to go to find that out will be uh, Bianca's live blog. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, certainly we, you know, we, every day we're checking all of the um, uh, the state health department media releases to see where some of the outbreaks are happening. Um, obviously, at the moment, there's a lot of focus on uh, residential aged care facilities uh, and hospitals as being kind of um, localized hotspots. So, yeah, we're just, I guess, keeping track of it. And we, I mean, we do have you know, historical examples to look to. Obviously, the Spanish flu comes up pretty regularly as as an example of how these things can play out. And um, I do recall that uh, I think with the Spanish flu, there were kind of 
subsequent spikes in infection rates after um, the kind of public health measures were were loosened. And so I think that's really what uh, everybody's worried about and, and trying to avoid is to work out how do we come out of lockdown without seeing those those spikes in infection rates again. And I guess one of the places to look will be those preprints coming out of um, some of the top medical journals. So they're trying to um, publish as much information as they can early, um, even before it's peer reviewed. And, and Bianca's keeping an eye on that as well. So that'll be interesting to follow along. Yes, it's an absolute fire hose of data that's coming out on preprint servers. And not all of it is good quality. Uh, some of it's really kind of feels like it's been scribbled on the back of a table napkin. Um, some of it's very small sample sizes and some fairly long bows and no control groups and uh, short follow-up periods and all of the things that normally would guarantee a paper would never see the light of day. But I think in, in the environment that we're in now, um, any and all data has some utility, even if it's, I think, bad data. It doesn't necessarily mean that we take those learnings, but at least, you know, I think every single piece of patient information um, that is kind of put up there could tell a story. And I guess the challenge really with um, with preprint server information is trying to kind of uh, work out what that story is <laughs> and um, and how that contributes to our understanding of what's happening at the moment. Thanks so much, Bianca, for giving us an update on what's going on at the moment and I guess for joining us in what is life right now where we're all basically just living in a giant experiment ourselves and waiting to see what happens. Um, Bianca, if people want to get in touch with you about some of these updates or something for the blog, where can they get in touch with you? Uh, The best way is by email. So my email is just bianca at biancanograde.com. Um, so yes, always open if anyone has any story ideas or you've seen something interesting, um, any tips, any comments, any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Medical Republic podcast, a program for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins. You can contact me at francine at medicalrepublic.com.au. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Um, please send us tips and feedback to felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.